Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am Joe Devine and I'm joined now by Alex Stewart. Hello. Hello. Uh, today we spoke to a very interesting man with a very interesting name, Charles Gould. What a, what a great name. Isn't it a good name? Yes. Uh, Charles's story is equally as interesting as his name. Charles started a company called Retexo. You don't need to roll the R, but I think it sounds better if you do. Retexo. Um, Alex, in bullet point form, can you tell me what Retexo do? Por favor. So Retexo aid in the recruitment and strategizing of uh, professionals in football clubs, uh, looking particularly at things like sporting directors, heads of academy and coaches. Are you reading that from somewhere or is that just literally how you talk? That's literally how I talk. <laughs> Such a weirdo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Sorry, carry on, Mr. Wikipedia. Uh, and they do this by uh, conducting network analysis. <laughs> <laughs> do you speak uh, yeah. to your mother like that? Uh, I'm, do go on. Uh, yes. His job's very interesting. She did tell me yesterday that I was very weird, <laughs> which is not its not what you want to hear from your mum, really, is it? Like, yeah, no, it's you'd what like I want to hear from your weird. mum. Yeah. yeah um, so, yeah, he, 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 helps, he helps clubs find the right people, and he does that on the basis of who those people have developed and worked with previously. Uh, so it kind of builds up to on-pitch data, uh, and is all the kind of supplementary stuff that goes into producing players, and he's mining that for efficiencies in the market. Yeah, I tell you what, the, all the talk about the big networks and the big matrixes uh, that they are creating, i.e., trying to find, uh, you know, if there's fifty uh, famous players who've come from one particular area, who was the coach or who was the scout or whoever who uh, who oversaw all of that, and trying to find um, little nuggets within the marketplace, I suppose. But hey. Charles explains it much better than I have and just a little bit less well than Alex did with his weird dictionary voice. Um, anyway, if you like to read things that are very, very good, you should visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO and you can get a 30-day free trial or a indeterminable amount of time free trial, I think it's 30 days, uh, to explore everything that The Athletic has to offer. And I mentioned this actually when we had Heels Brower on from uh, from Sci Sports a while ago, uh, or Sports Sci, Sci Sports, I can't remember which way around. Anyway, Adam Crafton, journalist for uh, The Athletic, spoke to him about a long piece of data in football. If you haven't read that, you really should. It's fantastic. And generally speaking, there's quite a lot of usage of that um, throughout various different articles on the site, isn't there, Alex? Are there any other data pieces that jump to mind that maybe of interest and tangentially related to this podcast. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, Tom Worville has been working with uh, various of the beat writers um, to do squad depth work uh, on the basis of, you know, where is this team strong or weak looking at uh, who's in the, the, the playing squad. So it's a nice kind of use of data um, to, to build a profile of clubs, which will presumably then, you know, uh, be the sort of thing that the club is thinking about heading into a transfer window whenever that will be. Yeah, there's a whole world out there, you know, and I can hear it through my window now with that police car. Anyway, read, better yourselves, read, better yourselves. And you can do that by visiting theathletic.co.uk. No, 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 dot com, dot com, sir, forward slash TIFO. Um, but for the time being, let us leave you in the warm embrace of Charles Gould and Retexo. Say it with me, Alex. Retexo. Retexo. <laughs> Come on. Uh, Retexo. <laughs> and you went I... to a private school. You can't I even just... roll your R's and you went to a private... Never mind. Here's Charles Gould from Retexo. Charles, can, can I start by asking you to explain to me um, what makes Retexo, your company, different from another data analysis outfit like Opta or, or, or Statsbomb, for example? Yeah, so, so one of the big things that we, we tried to do to differentiate ourselves from other data providers at the time that we incorporated the business last year was to focus as much as possible in the initial stages on the uh, qualitative data um, around both players but also technical stuff. Um, we felt that looking at the market, there's a ton of focus on what happens on the pitch 
um, which of course is the manifestation of uh, well, which is where the success needs to be. But we feel is the manifestation of, of uh, thousands of different variables prior to that, and those are the things that we were most interested in looking at. So um, what we did was to focus a lot on um, who these players are, where they come from, which coaches they've worked with, uh, which scouts have found them, uh, which, which people within clubs have committed money to buying them, and who has allowed these people to be on the pitch at the time that we're actually watching the game. Because we feel that, that just analyzing what's happening in-game is ignoring all of the different things that, that, that go into those players being available for that moment. The other thing, which I think is, is super important, is when we look at the, uh, when we talk about analytics, that almost always means analytics of players. But I think equally as important is um, performing analytics on the technical staff that work with the players. Because if the, if the right structure isn't in place at a club, then it's very unstable. And we see many examples of how that doesn't benefit the the on-pitch results. So we focus as much on on analysing technical staff as we do the players. Right. That's interesting. I mean, it's, it's funny when you talk about it that way, because uh, as, a, as a sort of casual observer of, uh, of uh, statistics and the use of metrics in, in sport, um, it strikes me that there are many intangibles that would, would either be impossible to, to collate or record, at, you know, at the current time, maybe in the future, um, or that are, are things that I'm not even sure how you would consider recording. It sounds like you are describing some of the things that are on the way to that. What, what sort of examples would they be, Charles? Well, in isolation, they're intangible. You're absolutely right. But the closer you look at uh, groups of different clubs or groups of different operators, the more relationships you tend to see in that data. So, for example, um, if you want to talk about academy production in clubs worldwide, I did a big, big project last year for, for Real Madrid who were looking to restructure their academy. And one of the things we wanted to do was understand which clubs are running academies at, on a proficient scale. So what we did was to look at every single player that had played a minimum of Europa League football over the last decade, and we traced those players back to the academy they came from in their home country. And where we saw particular academy output, we were able to identify who had been running the academies of the most proficient clubs. And what we then did was to dig into why those people were the ones who were being successful. So what structures did they employ beneath them? What were their reporting lines? What were the business mechanisms of the departments that they ran? And very quickly, we started noticing that, for example, clubs that have elections and therefore a high turnover of staff tend to have weaker academies because there's less process in place. We saw that academy directors who, were, uh, who had more access to either the president or the chairman or the CEO, whoever's running the organization, um, tended to be more successful because, by definition, it was something that was taken more seriously by the club. So there are a lot of intangibles around people themselves and their skills, but also there are a ton of very tangible things around how those people are deployed when they're at clubs. Can I ask a bit like uh, in Football Manager where each different uh, edition of the game or each new generation has a particular young player or maybe a coach that stands out for uh, for reasons that only the, the creators of the game could explain. In your <laughs> early workings, in this research that you just uh, went through, as you described last year, was there, was there a p- particular name of someone, a coach at an academy that stood out to you or that became your, you know, your jaws? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, first of all, I think that the two most interesting markets we found were, um, well, to, to, to call Serbia and Croatia one market is not entirely accurate, but, but former Yugoslav nations were, were performing very well. The other one, which is just astonishing given its population, is Uruguay. Um, and when we looked at which Uruguayan clubs had provided the most Uruguayan players to the top five European leagues, it wasn't one of the bigger clubs like Peñarol or Nacional. It was actually a smaller club in Montevideo called Defensor. Um, and there's a guy who's now become <clears throat> the sporting director who previously ran the academy for many, many years. His name is Fernando Fadue. And he's someone whose name I've never heard of and who I rarely hear about, but, but I think should be credited with some phenomenal work. So, so that's just one example. Does he know that you talk about him, Charles? Does he know he features in, in your life in such a powerful way? I don't think he knows to what extent, no. <laughs> we, have, we have had several conversations together. He's a, he's a great guy. Without uh, giving away trade secrets or anything, how do you go about 
finding out and building these these networks because presumably for one thing how a club operates its academy is presumably relatively secretive um, because they're doing things they don't want other clubs to find out um, but also you're you're relying on data I'm assuming from things like transfer marked or, or whatever and particularly when you start delving into smaller clubs some of that stuff may be inaccurate or so how do you go about harvesting those those two types of uh, information sure well I think Personally, that I've got a big advantage in that in my former life, I was uh, an executive recruiter. Uh, in fact, I should probably drop the word executive because these guys aren't executives. Um, but the, the, the whole nature of that business is that everybody you meet is theoretically a candidate for something at some point. And therefore, they tend to be very open with you about um, what their roles entail, about how their teams work, uh, and about what the deficiencies are. Uh, in the organizations that they work in. So I think that on starting this company, um, there was a lot of initial data and context that existed for me to be able to obtain this type of information. Um, I think that what's most interesting is talking to, to people, but also talking to clubs themselves. Every single club is, is relatively open to at least having a discussion around how they could improve uh, the technical side of their clubs and therefore are usually willing to share a fair amount of information about how those, uh, how those, organ- uh, sorry, how those departments are structured. And actually one of your points that you made about uh, clubs being secretive, um, I don't see that as much as you might think. Um, I also think that there are far fewer trade secrets than clubs would like you to believe. We, we actually found that a number of the, of the 52 clubs that I mentioned earlier who had been highly proficient at, player development, particularly in Europe, were proficient in spite of themselves and in spite of the poor practices that they had in place at the time. So it's um it's far less it's it's a far less guarded secret if you like than than you might think. So does that mean you can lay the the credit for player development really quite emphatically at the feet of of an individual in a setup or or to what degree are you having to say well this coach is clearly a very talented coach and they're very good at working with young players because we can see who moves through it but we need to contextualize that by looking at the whole setup and the funding and that they've got a very supportive director who believes in in academy stuff how do you how do you uh, make those two things distinct or pull them apart to work out who's really uh, the the reason for success. Sure, no, that's a great question. I mean, obviously, there's no one person that's ever responsible for the development of a player. But if you assume that that people presiding over uh, academy operations that are highly proficient uh, are at least not bad at their job, then what we can do is uh, start interviewing those people and understand uh, what the structure of the team is that they've built or what restrictions have been on them that dictated that the team has to look how it looks. And then we can understand, it's very easy for us to then find out who was working with them, who was working for them, whether they um, considered any particular innovations from club level. For example, you know, do the academy players have access to the first team players? Do they eat in the same dining room? Do they train on the same pitches? Uh, are the scouts uh, that, that recruit youth players able to negotiate their own deals or does it all have to be done by by someone more senior at the club there are lots of little nuances that exist that allow academy recruitment to be more agile but 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 the recruitment is really only one part and what's interesting is we felt at the beginning that recruitment would be 90% of how proficient an academy was because obviously if you're not getting the right players in you're not you're not producing the right results but it's also very interesting looking at, at, at what the methodology is and what the training structures are within those academies because you can also look at a club like Athletic Bilbao who, as you know, only recruit players from the Basque country in Spain. And it's, it's very unusual that a club that's, that's recruiting uh, players only from such a small region produces so many uh, fantastic academy graduates. In fact, I think the year that, that Kappa went to Chelsea and that uh, Laporte went to Man City, they became the first club in history to sell two academy graduates for over 50 million euros, um, which is pretty phenomenal. So I think that the coaching, once the players have been uh, admitted into the academy, is as important as the initial recruitment. 
And then the third piece to that is what's the pathway that's provided by the club? So do these, do these players have access to first-team football if they're good enough? And I know that every club says yes to that, but, but that's simply not the case. Uh, and, and so if you look at a club like Lyon, for example, who historically have also recruited close to home, and, and so if you think of notable graduates they've had over the last, say, 15 years, like Benzema, Lacazette, Mtiti, Fakir, Toliso, these are guys who, whether or not they were born in France, grew up around the Lyon area. And they were all given access to first-team football, to European competition, and, and able to really show that they were, uh, they were able to cut it at that level. So in short, I'd say that, that the three things that matter are the recruitment, uh, the methodology, and then the pathway. And then somebody who recognizes those three things, I think, is, uh, I think it, you know, is off to a good start. Just to touch briefly on on the Leon thing, and also you've got like the Ile de France region around Paris, for example, as well. And you've mentioned Serbia and Croatia already, and Uruguay. Are you also delving in almost to a kind of micro level to look at, at what access these kids have before they even join an academy to particular types of pitches or sports clubs locally, or whether? schools have a particularly high standard of coaching before they get sucked into the the professional matrix do you do you go in that granular level of detail as much as possible yeah so so for example if we were doing um a study on the area that let's say the lazio region in italy the area around uh well the area that rome is a uh, is a part of what we would do is to look at all of the particular uh, football schools in rome that players have come from so all of the guys who are currently playing in the Primavera teams at Lazio and Roma, which is where we would start, obviously, because they're local, we would look at, at, at what the career trajectories have been for those guys and, and, and which, which uh, associations or entities they've been affiliated with prior to being scouted by the professional club. And, and, and what you realize is that, you know, it's usually, um, it's usually only a handful of smaller football schools that, that tend to provide these types of uh, players to the professional clubs. So it's quite easy to, to, to dig into that if we're looking at, at regions in isolation. Beyond that, we're trying our best at the moment to understand, you know, what, what kind of infrastructure is in place within those, those football schools so that we can uh, try and assign, you know, if, 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 if we look at a number of players who've graduated or come out of a particular school that play in a certain way, we'd like to understand what kind of facilities that school had that perhaps contributed to them having certain physical or technical characteristics. Um, so, so, so that's something we're absolutely focused on now. But, but just given the, given the global scale of this, um, of this world, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to pinpoint to, uh, to in, in too detailed a way right now. And in terms of collecting uh, information about, about players that are part of academies, for example, do you ever take it further than the football itself? Do you ever try to uh, collect information relating to their, their home life or their characteristics, for example? Because I know that these are things that in recruitment circles are, are difficult to translate to the more uh, statistical, analytical way of approaching things and, and is still more part of the kind of the old boys network, as it's called. You know, your manager calls uh, your, your old manager's friend who was worked with the player five years ago and he tells you that you know he loves going out on a Friday night or something is there any way of collating that information do you do that um, we don't do that specifically and and it's very hard to do that um, if you don't know the people involved one of the areas that we do use quite a lot is to talk to the agents of particular players because they're often party to a lot of information that either they don't want the clubs knowing specifically or that they hold that the clubs don't for whatever reason that might be um, the the difficulty with that is, of course, agents all have an agenda, which is to paint their player in the most favourable light, and and to um, uh, you know to and, and and have a vested interest in doing that. So um, we find that that can be a useful outlet for information, but only only relating to certain aspects. Beyond that, I think it's much more word of mouth, and unless we had a specific mandate to uh, focus on um, you know personal lives or family backgrounds or family disciplines, then it, it, it's probably something that's harder for us to address. Okay, so this is, I mean, it's quite a unique angle to take from, certainly in terms of the people that we've spoken to, and it's clear that you have an approach um, that that, it, that is separable from from these other companies. What is your commercial model? How, how does this work? I mean, presumably you work with clubs, right? How, how, how do you do that? 
Well, we have two types of clients right now, and, and, and obviously the plan is to grow. But in short, we work with ownership groups, and that's ownership groups that are either pre- or post-acquisition. So one of the benefits, actually, of me being based in the U.S. is that I know um, a lot of the groups that have designs on entering European football through either an investment or an acquisition. Uh, and a lot of the time, these are people that um, may have been owners of American sports franchises, or they might be people who are businessmen with European roots and just like football. Um, but in any event, they're rarely people that really understand it at a granular level. And what has and and and, and I think there have been so many examples of uh, particularly Americans having their fingers burnt by making. Uh, investments in Europe that have that have gone south. That, that there's a good market for us to advise these people ahead of time on if they do make the acquisition, what sorts of people they should have in their structure to realise the vision that they're uh, that they're hoping for. And that normally will include very high level personnel. So that might be a CEO, that might be a sporting director uh, or director of football, and and that might be a head coach. And so it's easy for us to run analytics on a number of different people that we feel would suit their objectives. So that's that's the first part. Um, obviously, post-acquisition um, uh, groups are in place and they have uh, a defined vision for what it is that they want to achieve. The other is that we work for clubs individually. And, and as you know, on the continent, there are many clubs that, that, that don't have ownership models but are fan-owned. Um, and, and regardless of that, we'll work directly with a club that is owned by, by an individual anyway. And what we'll do is we'll partner with the club. We don't, we don't have any interest in prescribing any of our methodology to clubs um, because I think that if you've got, if you've got two, two different clubs that are looking to recruit a player in the same position – it's very unlikely that, uh, unless that player is extraordinary, it's very unlikely that they'll be going after the same types of players because they've got different budgets, they've got different playing styles, the coach is different. So we will only ever partner with clubs in order to help them. And once we understand what their objectives are in the recruitment of a certain player or uh, of, a, of a player in a certain position, we'll help them to build statistical models around the um, around the performance of players that they're interested in, but we won't actively bring them recommendations. On the first point there, the pre-acquisition, or I suppose it doesn't have to be pre-acquisition if, if a club is looking for a new sporting director or academy head, for example. Um, let's just pick a hypothetical here and, and say it's a major club um, and they've come to you uh, to help you know, appoint a new sporting director or academy head. Can you take us through the process? What would that look like? Of course, yeah. So, so, so let's talk about a sporting director because we've we focused quite a lot on academy so far. Um, so, with a sporting director, I would I would be bold enough to say that the majority of sporting directors have have done uh, a bad job, <laughs> and a lot of the time, these people are um, extremely empowered, have access to funds, and end up wasting a lot of money and. There are many people that you see bouncing around the same job for different clubs and they don't really stay anywhere for more than 18 months or sometimes even less, which which doesn't necessarily reflect on them. But it's much harder to leave a tangible legacy if you're moving that much for whatever the reason might be. So I think what's really important once you've exhausted the qualitative subjects, so that might be which languages do they speak and um, you know what, what, what nationality are they? I think then, you know, you really want to dig into the granularity of it. So what we would do is to build, build a model showing all of the players that that person has recruited, not just in the role of a sporting director, but um, in a previous role as a scout. Because 90% of the time, these guys have been scouts that, that, that become sporting directors. Um, so we would specifically be looking at, at leagues and countries that they recruit from. So is this guy a specialist in recruiting players from France or from, from Italy, whatever it might be? Um, what kind of um, age are the players that this person normally recruits? So do they, do they buy uh, young players with high resale potential or do they buy, quote unquote, the finished article? Um, how much money does this person typically spend on players? And, and, and part of that's dictated by the previous point. Um, you know, a lot of the time, if, if, if a player is young, they, they might not be as expensive. 
Um, and then how much money has the club received through the sale of these players? And, 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 and that's a legacy that a sporting director leaves, whether or not he's still at the club at the time that one of the players he's bought is ultimately sold. Because if, he's, if he can point to the fact that he's made money for the club, um, then, then that's fine. It doesn't matter whether he was still there. He, he put together a squad that was able to be commercialized at a later date. Um, and, and, and once you start looking at those uh, specific factors, you can quite quickly narrow down uh, the pool to fit uh, the model of an ownership group or of a club uh, based upon the requirements that they give you. So we have a database that we've, we've built over several years, which lists every single player that, um, a, that has arrived at a club under the watch of a sporting director and a head scout. And so, so then what we would do is go in, uh, once we see that a player was linked with a certain individual, we'd then go in and, and, and interview as many people as possible who had been at the club at the time to really understand who had pushed that transfer and who had been the one who had signed off on it and who had been the one who was most interested in it. That's, it sounds like a lot of work. It is a lot of work, but if you look at um, uh, if, if if you look at the top leagues in Europe every season, um, and you look at the players that come into those leagues, it's actually less work than you think after a after a particular period of time. The, How big the, is your team, Charles? So um, we've got three people with me here in LA that do a lot of the data dissemination, um, but but right now it's 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 me that deals with the clients. So how many people do you speak to <laughs> on, on a weekly basis? <laughs> uh, hundreds, hundreds. I mean, wow. you know, we've got, um, you know, usually, uh, usually during the week, I'd, I'd, I'd speak to between 10 and 20 people a day about various things. And obviously that's, that's doing our marketing and doing our business development as well as uh, working on behalf of clients that we already have. Okay, well, listen, let me take it back to the hypothetical uh, in the sporting director scenario. Um, once you have all of your information about these people, do you reduce that to a particular score? Like, can, can you can you tell a club, if you give them a, a short list and say this person at the top of the list uh, meets most of the requirements that you've asked for and is therefore the best person? Or, or are you offering them a short list and, and letting them make their own minds up after interviews and such? No, we'd offer a short list. And if you can visualise um, a matrix um, and, you know, let's say we had... Uh, I don't know, 15 different requirements that the club or that the ownership group had in uh, in hiring a sporting director, it would be easy for us just to even visually tick a box that um, for the for the particular discipline that that sporting director satisfied. So um, we would take our clients through with that. The difficulty with assigning a score to the work of a sporting director is that it would have to be a different model for every client that we had because every every club would have slightly different nuances to it and slightly different objectives to it. So, And, w- um, and what are those objectives, Charles? Like what's, a, what's a good example of a club's objectives if they're looking for a new sporting director? If you say there's 15 of them, what might four of them be? Sure. Well, well, in, in, in most of the leagues, the top four or the top three or top five is usually fairly well defined at this point because of, because of money. So, so you have a big scramble slightly further down the league for the rest of clubs to want to finish in a position of probably 12 and six or 12 and five, something like that. And so in order to properly embed yourself in that, in that, um, in that spectrum, um, it's really important to be, to be strong on player trading. And so that's normally the recruitment of post Academy players. So probably between the ages of 19 and 22, um, that, that can be uh, that can be bought fairly cheaply. So, let's say you're in France and you uh, you're talking about Lille, for example. You know, a lot of the time they might find a player who has not been rejected, but not managed to find a lot of time um, at PSG, for example. And manage to acquire that player for fairly cheap, and then and then sell that player on at a really high resale uh, price a year or two down the line. So the model is much more about. Um, trading than it is about development or about or about buying the finished article. So 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 that's one part. The other part is how um, because of the way that the world is going right now, how savvy is this uh, individual with technology or with data? So there are broadly speaking two types of sporting director at the moment. One is one is the guy who's got a great network and and, and relies on recommendations from that network. Uh, and 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 the other is probably someone who is employing statistics and employing probability models and um, different different types of technology to supplement those things. 
um, the the the, fav- the the more favorable of the two for ownership groups now is 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 more on the statistics and technology side. So those would be two that I would I would say right now are particularly in vogue. Yeah, and how has that shift happened? I think that I think that there's more information available now to go on than there was ten years ago, just just by virtue of what's what's available, what's publicly available. But I think also um, a lot of the time now, clubs and particularly clubs that aren't in that little coterie of, of elite clubs within their within their own country, it's incredibly hard for them to make any money through commercial success, so sponsorship deals or, or you know or ticketing revenue, whatever it might be. And so often, a lot of the time, they'll run at a deficit. And the only real way to uh, overcome that deficit and sometimes even make a profit is through, is through clever player trading. And it's also a good way for owners to make money um, because you know, that's, that's, that's something that they're going to make a lot more money from than, than getting the new shirt sponsorship deal. So I think whereas in the past, um, a lot of clubs had this idea that commercial revenue would help it wash its face. I think people are realizing now that, that by, uh, by employing a, a clever trading model, you're, you're more likely to see good revenues. Presumably, uh, the key point with all of this is to achieve buy-in at ownership level, because one of the problems you see with uh, clubs, whether it's with sporting director roles, as, as you've already said, you know, kind of a maximum often 18 month tenure or with management, it's the chopping and changing. And of course, that has an effect on recruitment. It has an effect on uh, pathway to the first team, all of these different things that are instrumental in the way you're assessing the, the, the ability and the value that's given by these setups. So how do you find working with an ownership group that you haven't necessarily begun the process with how how do you go about achieving buy-in for that and convincing them not only is this your guy but it's absolutely crucial that you stick with them and that you give them a significant period of time in order to develop these processes because otherwise you're kind of wasting it yeah i mean i think that one of the key things with with a lot of ownership groups is that a lot of them go into it because they want to make money (laughs) and so i think that if you can show those owners, if they're individuals or those groups in general, um, evidence that person X has generated, you know, X million, uh, X tens of million euros or pounds through the successful recruitment and, and, and resale of players, then I think that goes a long way to, to getting them excited. I think that the harder thing for, um, for, for incoming owners is to bet on a longer term uh, project. And so if you look actually at a lot of the sporting directors who are having success now, a lot of them are young, a lot of them are in their mid-30s, early 40s, and a lot of them were specifically hired by bigger clubs because they've done such a great job at smaller clubs. So think you know, clubs like Sassuolo or you know, Atalanta are doing incredibly well now, but, but that's, a, that's a fairly recent thing. So, um, and they grew up with football manager, right, Charles? Is that also true? I think that that might be part of it as well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, think, I think with ownership groups and getting the buy-in, if you can persuade them that the insights you're giving them can not only save them money but increase their, their revenues, that I think is the first start. The other, the other thing is that, um, and, and, and this is something that's, that's um, specific to me, but I, I, was, I was lucky enough prior to setting up Retexo to work in a group that uh, is an ownership group in American sports that owns the Dolphins and has a lot of interests in in European football. Um, and the exposure that, well, the understanding I gained from being part of that group, but also the exposure that gave me to other owners and would-be owners uh, has been really helpful in, in knowing how to tailor my message to them. How do you think uh, the the push of, for example, the, the Manchester City um, football group with their various clubs that they're owning... Um, also perhaps more cogently what the Red Bull group are doing with Leipzig not just being a success in its own right but being the eventual destination uh, of players from Salzburg who are themselves coming from FC Liefering. How is that model affecting what you're doing and how owners perceive the importance of those relationships? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think every owner now would like to have a multi-club portfolio and and a lot of what you read in the press about speculative owners are talking about recreating that 
But the fact is that what City have done uh, or what City Football Group have done and what Red Bull have done, it takes a hell of a lot of planning and, and has to be very, very carefully structured and then integrated uh, in order to see the results that they're both, that they're both having now. Um, I don't think that, and, and, and in fact, it's interesting looking at the differences between those two groups where you've got one that started with you know, an absolutely uh, enormous anchor club that has then built off using the word city as the brand with, with clubs in other countries. You know, Red Bull didn't do that. They, they, they started with a pretty modest um, collection of clubs um, and, and are managing to be competitive in the elite competitions, maybe not to the same extent that Manchester City are, but, but in a completely different way. And, and, and their way is much more around the recruitment, development and, and, and trading of players than it is around buying, um, buying you know, the finished article. So you know, the similarities would be that they're both training up young players in their satellite clubs to, to theoretically one day push for a position in their, uh, in their main club. So I think that, that as multi-club ownership group goes, there are many different ways to do it and many different models that you can look at employing. I think that in, in, in how that affects us, it's an opportunity in some ways because if you can convince the, the group that's central to that expansion that you've got a product or a potential partnership that's, that's of interest, then you could theoretically roll that out over all the different assets that they have. But equally, you know, it's a challenge because um, a lot of them tend to employ their own team of, of statisticians and of data analysts and, and, and like to keep things in-house. So it, 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 it just depends on the vision. But would you advocate, say you were retained by a, a large Premier League club that was interested in doing that, w- would you be part of a process that said, uh, we've surveyed all the available clubs in League Two, for example, in France, and we think that for reasons X, Y and Z, you should go and buy that one. Is, is that part of conversations that you're having? Absolutely, absolutely. And so um, understanding what they hope to achieve and then looking at which clubs that are already in existence have the raw materials to get them to that point in short time and are at a price point that would be of interest to the ownership group, absolutely. Um, would you mind if we play a little game now, Charles? What, let's say to- Alex and I had a, a billions of pounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Imagine, just for a second, it's a, lo- it's a wonderful thought. It really is. All the, all the nice things we could do. Uh, but we want to buy a football club in... Where do you want to buy a football club, Alex? Uh, I'd like to buy Socho in France. No, don't say the club, because that's I, breaking. You've ruined, ruined the game. Oh, You've ruined the... Right, we're saying England, so it's oh, a club okay. that I will know. In England, Charles, we have uh, billions of pounds to spend. We don't want to spend that much money, though. We've got £250 million that we would be willing to spend, and we're not, you know, we don't have to buy a Premier League club, for example. But uh, Alex's uh, conditions are as follows. Alex? I would like a good, strong youth academy, ideally a tier one. Um, I'd like a one city club ideally um and i'd like to start to look to establish a a satellite club as soon as possible where do we go charles well i would say that an interesting just something off the top of my head an interesting club to look at might be someone like mk dons um because you're not looking at top tier and and especially in england even championship and and well certainly premiership you know the prices can be um, just so prohibitive. So, so, so that notwithstanding, I think MK Dons could be really interesting. You've got fairly good proximity to London. You've got a good youth system that's in place, and we've seen, you know, we've seen players come out of that Delhi Alley and and and, and others who've, who've graduated from that academy. And I think you know the facilities that they have there are, are absolutely fantastic. So I think that if you if you were to acquire a club like that. You've got a good catchment area, but you're close to London, which is a, a strange thing to say because not many clubs satisfy those two things. And I think that you've got a lot of the infrastructure in place to be fairly successful quite quickly. What if I one, said that uh, we didn't want to buy a club with a complicated history of fan engagement? <laughs> <laughs> um, you were about to say another one, though. You answered my question for me. Let's go. Well, no, just 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 another club that I think has been interesting. I mean, it might not be cheap, but I, I've always been pretty interested in in Derby. Um, I've been mm-hmm. I, I've been interested in the the um, where their base is a hotbed for for player uh, player production and 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 has been for a long time. They're pretty international for a club that hasn't played top flight football for a long time, and that they've had American owners um, and they've had uh, American executives who've come through and I think helped them to to put in place good business practices 
Um, and they're certainly, uh, well, actually, no, they're not a one club city, but, but, but more or less. Oh, good. That was good. I think that was a good game. Um, can I ask you then, Charles, it sounds like you, you've worked with a, an ownership group before. You're obviously based in, in the States um, and presumably you spend much of your time talking to people in those echelons. Um, what are they like, football owners? I mean, let's, let's go with American football owners specifically, um, but what, what do they tend to be like in your experience? Um, so usually they're people who've made their money in, in real business, let's say and um, decide at some point that they, they would like to, uh, to have a go at, at football. And there can be a lot of different reasons for that. Some of the time, those people have European business interests and it's a good way of raising their profile uh, in Europe. Some of the time they love, you know, they, they're, because America is America, some of the time they'll have a grandfather that came from a city or a country and they'll want to try and reconnect with their roots by buying the local club. They tend to be incredibly uh, business focused. There's a lot less romanticism about it and a lot less reverence paid than would be from us probably to the history of these clubs and um, players that have been associated with them in the past, which I think in some ways is actually a really good thing because maybe we get a bit too caught up in the nostalgia of, of things that have gone before. But, but I would say they're people who are normally billionaires and I don't think you become a billionaire by by being mild mannered. So I think I would uh, <laughs> I think I would put it like that. And have you spent most time talking personally to, to to the the billionaires, or do you tend to find yourself speaking to the billionaires' employees? Both, both. I mean, usually um, the 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 owner, the ultimate owner, will have someone who runs their businesses, who who's more often than not the person that I'll liaise with. Um, and, and they're often people who've come from uh, finance, you know, finance backgrounds. Um, but I've, I've, I've spent quite a lot of time as well with, with people that actually are the ultimate owner of clubs as well. And I think you alluded to this, this already in your answer, but um, the time that you have spent, I mean, ge- ge- I'm sort of genuinely interested by the character and the personality of, of people who end up being billionaires. Um, you sort of referenced what that might be like already, but can, I don't know, can you say anything about the, the type of... Uh, their personalities are, are they you know in, the, in your experience have you met any warm billionaires um i've met some really nice ones yeah i mean i think that um i think that because the u.s is the way it is and the size of the the size and scale of the market and business opportunities here i think that there are people in the u.s that become billionaires that, that in in england or, or or in the uk for example might be worth uh, might be multi-millionaires, um, and I think that that's that's the difference. So I don't think those people are necessarily um, particularly different. It's just that um, what their success has led to is something on a much bigger scale. But but I think that they they tend to be people that are laser focused on a vision, much more high level thinking than perhaps on the granular detail of what it is that they're looking to to achieve. And so that's why they tend to employ teams of people around them that would take on the day-to-day responsibilities and strategy of what, you know, what will lead to the ultimate vision. So I would say in short, um, very, very single-minded and, and big picture thinkers. Did you read the psychopath test, Charles? No, I haven't actually read it, but I've, I've, I've heard about it. Yeah. I mean, this is, it always makes me think of this whenever I talk about billionaires, but, uh, yeah, John Ronson talks about the, uh, the percentage of billionaires or the percentage of psychopaths within billionaires being much higher than it is within the, <laughs> within the common community. Do you think you've ever met a psychopath, Charles? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I won't ask you to go into any more. I think Alex has a question. We'll move swiftly on from your stories of psychopaths. Yeah, I, I, I've got sort of two related questions. Firstly, I, I mean, you've already said that a lot of ownership groups will will acquire a club with a genuine sense of of turning a profit as as being their ultimate objective. But that is notoriously difficult in football. Um, and so, first question would be: Are there really actually other things? Are, are we still kind of in the in the you know, local businessman vanity area of, of of acquiring clubs. And secondly, with regards to American owners, someone like um, uh, John Henry, for example, who's been very, very successful uh, with Liverpool, he also has interests in other sports, uh, including a NASCAR team, I think. So why is it that in America they, they kind of diversify across different sports um, more than I think perhaps they do with European ownership groups? Yeah, well, uh, John John Henry also owns the Boston Red Sox, which um, 
you know, which is a which is a you know one of the one of the iconic sports franchises in the U.S. I think that there are two two parts to that I think that making making money out of owning a football club can be done one of two ways. The first is that you do it the way Fenway have done, which I wouldn't say is short term because they've been the owners now for a while, but they've spent an enormous amount of money, or or, or at least made available an enormous amount of money to uh, to Klopp and to uh, people within the club who are responsible for buying players. Now, uh, I know that, that that is also because they've received huge transfer fees through selling players like Coutinho and several others, but but they've been very free and trusting with their money. So I think that if you have an owner that's got pockets that deep, I think that that's, that's obviously a completely different story. Most owners that would curate a club are not people who are in that position. So I think in order to make money out of a club, uh, if you're not in that situation, it's got to be a much longer term plan and, and probably at least a five year plan. Because, you know, even if you restructure your academy, you're probably looking at a five year lag time before that starts bearing fruit. You, you, you need to get all the blocks in place from having the right personnel to be able to execute against what it is that you're looking to uh, to achieve. So. I think that, um, that, that those are the two different types of approach you could have. And obviously, the second approach probably suits a mid-sized club more than it does um, one of the elite European clubs. The other thing you asked, uh, which is interesting about um, being an ownership group with interest in, in different sports, I think that if, if and, and, and there are plenty of examples, I mean, um, Mr. Khan owns the Jacksonville Jaguars and Fulham and you know, there are many, many of those groups at the moment in the US that have those kind of interests. You've got the Glazers with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Manchester United and, and, and the list goes on. I think that the attraction of that is if you can build an ecosystem, as they like to say, of, of sports um, and then a group of service businesses around those sporting assets, you can create a very powerful marketing machine that perhaps can have uh, real estate, a real estate play to it. If you're looking at building new stadiums or training centers, you can build technology businesses, you can build entertainment businesses and venue businesses. And I think that the more the more sports assets you have, the more international in scale you can make that operation and the more cool things you can do around it with tangential areas to sports. Uh, Charles, can I ask you uh, some personal questions? Yes. Do you speak any other languages? I speak decent Spanish and I speak a little Italian. I've got um, uh, all my cousins on my dad's side are from Madrid and I've, I was born in South America. So um, my Spanish is decent. Right, because it struck me when you were talking before about, uh, you know, the ideal credentials of a sporting director, you mentioned um, how many different languages do they speak, which I, I makes such obvious sense that I'd never really thought about it before. Presumably that's a sought after um, attribute. It is, it is, but 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 especially with the with the Latin languages, there's a bit more leeway given there. I mean, I I, I did a project last year for um, a separate project for Madrid where we appointed um, Zidane's fitness coach, and one of the requirements was that it had to be uh, the, a speaker of a Latin language, so that if it wasn't Spanish, it would be easy for them to get up to speed on speaking Spanish day to day, but also someone who um, who, who spoke French because that's um, that's the nationality of his inner circle within the club. So um, we did we did a fairly extensive project. We, we actually ended up appointing a guy from the French Federation who'd been working with Deschamps uh, during during the, the World Cup winning campaign who actually didn't speak any Spanish at all but spoke uh, fluent English and French. So um, the language thing is, is, is pretty important. Oh, that's interesting. Um, also, as an observation, you speak very well, generally. I'm sure you know that, and I imagine that's, you know, as a result of your experiences maybe working in recruitment and stuff. Do you find that that's a very important facet of your job? If you need to sell something to, to the club, you need to be able to know what you, you look like, you know what you're talking about? or know what you're talking about, ideally? Yeah, well, thanks for saying that. <laughs> I've heard different <laughs> things from different people. Um, no, I mean, I think so. I think that I think that to be able to be convincing in your actions, but then be convincing by backing up those actions through tangible uh, statistics, I think is, is um, a powerful combination, um, and I hope is, is one of the reasons that we've won the work that we have. Yeah. How did you get into this personally? Um, also, it was interesting. I felt that um, so I mentioned that I've been in, in in executive recruitment for a long time, and I don't know how much you know about that world. But but the model is typically that 
a, um, a company or a club or whatever it might be will retain you on a project-by-project basis to find uh, a certain type of person. Um, and you usually get a portion of your fee up front, a portion midway through the project, and then a portion at the end. And my frustration had become that if you assume at such time as a, uh, a search is commissioned by a company, that's by definition the conclusion of a strategic process internally for them to define exactly what it is that they're looking for. And the problem is that if you're just executing on that, you miss out on all that strategic planning, which I think makes you makes it harder for you to sell the opportunity with complete credibility, but also gives you less context around why the company wants what it wants. So my idea became that, and, and, and also the other part of that is that there's very little context then around what people actually do before they come back with the short list of candidates. And, um, and what occurred to me was that I think if you can identify candidates more through the use of data and facts, I think that that turns up a lot of people that wouldn't be on a typical shortlist for a particular job. But also, if you can help a company to plan strategically ahead of time, first of all, it's more interesting and you're involved in more of the process. But I think it gives you a much better understanding of what of what they need on the back end. And, and, and sometimes you can even change their mind as they're planning and say, I, I don't think that that's realistic. I don't think you can get that. Um, rather than having to carry the can for something not working out uh, because you took on a um, you took on an assignment that ultimately was never going to work. So you left that to start your own business? Yes, yeah, how, I did. How, 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 does it, how's it going? How do you feel? Is it, I mean, it's a scary thing to do, right? It is, it is. But actually, I think that, you know, it's a long term, it's a long term game. Um, I think we've got an angle that I don't see anyone else using. Um, I, I, I think we've got a track record of working with the types of clubs and groups that um, I think most people would love to work with. Um, and I think we do great work with them. So um, yeah, it is a it is a little different because um, you don't have all that security. But I think potentially the upside's a lot more exciting as well. Okay. Well, Alex, do you have any more questions for Charles before we go? Uh, no, I'm I'm fully satisfied. Thank you. <laughs> I've never heard you say that before. Well, Charles, you've done something very strange to Alex here. But whatever it was, I'm going to listen back to this while I edit it and try to figure out how you've how you've done that. Um, oh, hey, listen, well, thanks so help. much for your time. I really appreciate it. It sounds like what you do is very interesting, and uh, we wish you the best of luck with your venture. Thank you both very much. I really enjoyed that. Not at all. Um, listen, we'll be back next week with uh, something and somebody else. Don't know what it is or who, but uh, I'm sure it'll become apparent in the fullness of time. Goodbye. Goodbye.